Thank you for joining us for this episode of the IPI Policy Basics Podcast. Today's topic is Consumer Welfare Should Always Come First. We're coming to you today from the studios of Salem Media Group in Dallas, Texas. I'm Tom Giovanetti, the president of the Institute for Policy Innovation. With our IPI Policy Basics podcast, we are building an audio library of podcasts on basic policy concepts and topics. For those who want to learn and understand how to think about policy from a free market standpoint, or who want to get up to speed on a particular issue. And so today I'm delighted to talk about why consumer welfare should always come first. And I'm also delighted to be joined again by our resident scholar, Dr. Merrill Matthews. So let's talk about why consumer welfare should always come first. Now, all the consumers out there are all cheering right now and saying, yeah, absolutely. Consumer welfare should always come first. It seems like it's kind of obvious, right? But hopefully as we talk about this, you'll understand why things are maybe not quite as simple as that. And it's a reminder to me of why we're doing these policy basics podcasts in the first place, because When an issue comes along, a policy issue, an economic issue, a political issue, uh, there's, there's really kind of two ways that you can think about what is the right answer. One way you can think about it is by whatever's politically expedient or popular or whatever you think benefits you. But the other way to think about it is a principles based approach. And so those of us in the think tank world, those of us here at the Institute for policy innovation, we try to take a principles based approach to thinking about what are the right policy solutions and what are the right answers when a particular policy controversy comes along for a lot of conservatives. It's like, if you were to ask them, what are the basic conservative principles? They would say, well, you know, we're pro-life and we're pro-gun, you know, we're pro second amendment, we're pro-life and, and they probably wouldn't have a much of a longer list after that. And so again, that's one of the reasons why we're doing these policy basics podcasts is, is to give some examples and some principles for how we really think about policy and how we decide what is the right policy solution to a given problem. And that's the nature of the topic today. Consumer welfare should always come first. So why is this important to talk about and not just obvious on its face? Well, one answer is because most of us, at least, are both producers and consumers. Now, if you're out there living on a trust fund and not having to work, arguably you're not a producer, you're just a consumer. But most of us are both producers and consumers. We work at a job, we have a business, and we produce when we work in our job or when we have a business, but then when we go to the store and buy things, we are consumers. So for instance, if you work for a company that manufactures toilet paper and paper towels, you are on the producer side of that industry when you're at work. But when you go to the grocery store and buy toilet paper and paper towels, you're on the consumer side. So most of us are both producers and consumers. And this is a reminder of something in economics called the circular flow. Now this is an audio podcast, so you can't see a picture, but imagine in your mind sort of a circle or an oval. And at one point on that circle, businesses pay wages to households, but then households use wages to buy products and services from businesses. And then businesses take that money and they use it to pay wages to households. And then households use that money to buy products and services from businesses. And this is what we call in economics, the circular flow of money. And if you can picture that in your mind, you can see that, again, most of us are both producers 
and consumers. So let's say that there's a change that happens in the world. Let's say you work for a company that produces paper goods, paper towels, and toilet paper, and there's a change that happens in the world that suddenly makes paper towel and toilet paper more expensive. Now, as a producer, you might think that's a good thing. You might think, oh, goody, um, my company's more profitable now. Uh, maybe I'll get a raise or maybe I'll get a bonus. But as a consumer, when you go into the store, you say, hey, wait a minute, how come toilet paper and paper towels are so much more expensive than they used to be? So to begin this discussion, we have to understand that most of us are both producers and consumers. And so we have an interest in the producer side, but we also have an interest in the consumer side. So given that, how do we decide when a policy comes along that is going to tilt the playing field, that's either going to be benefit producers or consumers, how do we decide what the right thing to do is? And that's why we're discussing this principle that in those cases, consumer welfare should always come first. Now, there's a philosophical basis for this, why consumer welfare should always come first. And the philosophical basis is that we work to consume, we do not consume to work. So for instance, you do not go to the store and buy products in order to help the business. You as a consumer do not exist to serve the business. The business exists to serve you. We work so we can buy things. We don't buy things to benefit producers. So sort of the end of the chain of economic activity is consumer benefit. The ultimate goal is to benefit consumers, to make sure consumers have good, valuable products and services at the lowest possible prices. Now, again, this may seem kind of esoteric, but when we get into some of the applications, hopefully it will become a little more clear. Again, we work to buy things. We don't buy things in order to benefit businesses. So when you stop on the way into work and go through the Chick-fil-A drive-in to buy a chicken biscuit, you're not doing that to help Chick-fil-A. In fact, the reason Chick-fil-A is there is to benefit you. You as the consumer are sort of, you're the, you're the top of the pyramid, of the economic pyramid. You're the top of the food chain, and they exist to benefit you. You do not exist to benefit them. Now, here's a couple of policy examples where these things tend to, where it sort of tends to hit the fan and where you actually have to remember these principles in trade, for instance, in trade policy. So let's say that a country decides that they are going to try to sell very cheap goods into the United States. So let's, you can think of any number of examples, but let's just say, for instance, that Mexico is going to be a cheaper place to manufacture washers and dryers than the United States. So all of a sudden, uh, Mexican competition is making it more and more difficult for U.S. companies in the U.S. to make washers and dryers. So you can think about in this equation that there are people who are harmed and people who are benefited. U.S. consumers are benefited. If, if at the end of the day, washers and dryers are less expensive, that's a benefit to consumers. But what if you work for the company in the United States that makes washers and dryers? And what if you lose your job? Or what if you don't get a pay increase? Or what if there are layoffs because of this Mexican competition and you're worried about your job? Remember, at the same time, you're both a, pr a producer 
and a consumer. So as a consumer, you benefit from having the lower prices, but as a worker, you may be harmed. As a producer, you may be harmed because of foreign competition. So when politicians come along and they say, well, we need to do something about this, there's a tendency to say, oh, we need to protect American jobs. So we're going to put tariffs on these imported washers and dryers in order to protect American jobs. But in that case, you're helping the producer, but you're harming the consumer because you're making washers and dryers more expensive. So how shall we think our way through an example like that? How shall we think our way through? Should we put tariffs on foreign goods in order to protect American jobs? In that case, we are protecting a small number of American producers, but we're harming a large number of American consumers by making the product more expensive. So, Tom, I remember Dick Armey, former uh, leader, uh, majority leader of the House of Representatives, talking about this one time. And I heard him say when lobbyists come into his office, they they would want to they would want him to move legislation or support certain legislation that would help the lobbyist and whoever the lobbyist is is representing there. And he said his question was always, how does this help the consumer? That was his, his sort of key focus. And what usually happened is they were there to help the producer, not the consumer. That's right. And as a as one of the few PhD economists in Congress, his point was, I'm here to help the consumer, not the producer. So tell me how what you're doing actually helps the consumer. And, you know, I, I've heard people do this. I've, I've, I've know people who had a small business in a, in a, a state, in a small town. And when Walmart would move in, they would complain because Walmart would come in and, and people in the, in, in the town would start going to Walmart to buy their various products. And this particular store owner would say, you know, I just can't compete with Walmart because they're able to buy things on such a large quantity. They're able to things, sell things for so much less, and it's hurting me as a business. And I would have to say, well, it may be, but you, you remember – people out there, including you, benefit by being able to go to Walmart and buy those things at much cheaper prices. Interestingly, over the past few years, under the sort of populist movement we've seen here, I've seen an awful lot of criticism among conservatives who don't like groups like, they call them large box, big box store coming in. They say they're ugly and they're terrible and they sell things that are cheap prices and they're hurting local businesses. But if, you're, if your goal is to make sure the consumer has lots of options at different prices so the consumer can be a value-conscious shopper out there and be able to buy more, afford more at a lower price, then you're not thinking about the consumer first. That's right, and that's a perfect transition to the next point I want to talk about, which is exactly in this area of antitrust, of businesses versus other businesses. But, you know, you're recounting the story of, of Dick Army saying, how is this going to benefit the consumer? Reminds me that there ain't nobody lobbying for the consumer. <laughs> you know, when, when somebody's lobbying lawmakers in Washington, D.C. or in a state capital, it's one business interest complaining about usually about another business interest or trying to gain some sort of competitive advantage or something. But almost nobody's lobbying for the consumer. And, and let's oh, just on that competitive advantage yeah. aspect. Let's let's think. There's, there's two things. Number one, a company can't compete because maybe there's uh, somebody it's foreign product or something like that, and and labor's less expensive. Yeah. In some cases, 
it's because the company is too inefficient to compete. That's exactly right. And so right. it's not because I can't compete with this other one. It's just that the other group, the other company, which may even be an American-based company, is so much more efficient because they started later. Maybe they, they invested the money in new technology and they're able to produce something much less. And so these various lobbyists go and say, you have to try to do something to hurt my competitor because I can't compete. And it's not necessarily because it's foreign cheap labor. It may be because I'm so inefficient, I can't do that. That's exactly right. So the first area of policy we talked about here is trade. And again, just to sort of quickly review, if another country wants to sell American consumers cheaper products, that's a benefit to American consumers. That's a feature, not a bug. That's not a problem. And if American companies are unable to compete, it's a mistake to enact policies that will protect a small number of American producer jobs, but that raise prices to a huge number of American consumers. And again, why? Because of the principle we're talking about today, that consumer welfare should always come first. But now getting into this area of business competition, like you were talking about, Dr. Matthews, and sort of a, a broader topic for this is antitrust. Okay. So a lot of times in the antitrust area, you will have companies complaining about other companies that somehow they're competing unfairly, or they have too much market power, or they're too big, or they're too dominant in the industry. So today we think about things like, for instance, Amazon being very dominant in the retail area, right? But it wasn't that long ago they were making the same complaints about Walmart because they That's were exactly so exactly right. Your Walmart, well, still, your, your Walmart illustration is still an excellent illustration because before Amazon was putting small retailers out of business, Walmart was putting small retailers out of business, right? And a few years ago, we ran into the same thing, for instance, with software companies complaining about Microsoft, that they couldn't compete against Microsoft, that Microsoft was putting everybody out of business. And so you end up with this sort of populist political kind of small versus big kind of thing that goes on. And who doesn't like the small guy, right? Who doesn't like the underdog? Of course, we're all sympathetic with the independent business, the small business, but that's not the problem. The problem, the question is, that's not the question. The question is, what do we do about it? Or do we do anything about it? Or should we in fact do anything about it? So when we talk about consumer welfare always coming first, this is what's called the consumer welfare standard in antitrust or in business competition. And consumer welfare is essentially the alternative to protecting competitors or to protecting managed competition and the government deciding how big should a company be, how many competitors should there be in a particular industry. And if we're going to assert, as we are recommending in this podcast, that the consumer welfare standard should be our standard, then we're not looking at is a particular business going out of business. What we're looking at is are consumers being harmed or are consumers benefiting? And if a major innovative dominant company is benefiting consumers rather than harming consumers, that's a good thing because consumer welfare should come first. And there's also a sense in which in the whole world of business competition, that if you're a business in a particular industry, you're supposed to try to put your competitors out of business. I mean, that's the whole idea of a dynamic free market economy. That's the whole idea of competition and encouraging innovation is the end goal. In fact, is to become a dominant player and a dominant 
company in a particular industry segment. And as long as what you're doing is benefiting consumers, that's a good thing, not a bad thing. Now, the alternative to that is what they do in Europe, which is where they have something called competition policy, where literally the government decides if companies have too big a market share and the government takes its role as saying, in order to guarantee sufficient competition, we don't want any particular company to have, say, say more than 35% market share or more than 50% market share or something like that. And that's literally the government deciding how much of a market share a particular company should have rather than letting competition and consumer choice make that decision. And if you look at the difference between the European experience, for instance, and the American experience, there's a reason why American companies tend to be more innovative than European companies. And the reason is that they are, one reason at least, is that they are not reined in by this idea of managed competition. So let's talk about Amazon, for instance, okay? There's, there's not a day that goes by that we don't get at least one Amazon delivery at my house, sometimes more than one. I mean, it's almost inarguable that Amazon has provided enormous benefit to consumers, both in price and in convenience of ordering, convenience of delivery, convenience of returns. Amazon has, the reason they've gained their market dominance is not because of some sort of evil political conspiracy. It's been because they have provided an enormous benefit to consumers. Now, has Amazon's growth come at the exper- at the expense of putting pressure on other traditional retailers? Yes, of course it has. Absolutely. There's no question. So from a political standpoint, from a policy standpoint, do we look at that and do we say, oh, this is a problem because Amazon has put other retailers out of business? Or do we look at this and say, oh, this is a wonderful thing because consumers are benefiting and innovation is taking place? And we would argue again, based on today's topic, that consumer welfare should always come first, that if you want the greatest benefit to consumers and if you want the greatest level of innovation, you put consumer welfare ahead of the good of the other competitors that are being pressured. Now, if a company like Amazon is harming consumers, for instance, if after gaining an enormous amount of market dominance, suddenly they start raising prices and suddenly start uh, harming consumers, that's a different matter. Now the consumer welfare standard is being violated. But as long as a company is benefiting consumers, as long as consumers are better off rather than worse off, then the consumer welfare standard is being met, and it's a good thing. Again, because of as we discussed, you're supposed to try to outcompete your competitors. That's the whole idea of competition. And it reminds me again of a few years ago when we had the Microsoft situation where you had smaller software companies complaining that Microsoft was putting them out of business. Well, every 18 months or so, Microsoft would come out with a new version of Windows that had more features and cost less money. So consumers were benefiting. Consumers were not being harmed. It's not like consumers were being harmed by Microsoft's innovation and market dominance. So Again, hopefully now people understand after we've talked about some of these examples, why you do very often find a tension between consumer welfare and producer welfare. And the point we're trying to make in this podcast is that consumer welfare should always come first rather than what's good 
export producers. But what you haven't talked about yet is how do you measure consumer welfare? How do you know what is benefiting consumers? And <clears throat> the economic answer is that's what consumers are buying. You have you have anticipated my next point, which is how do we how do we make these decisions? And that is consumer choice in the marketplace, right? Right. So, for instance, what government can do instead of trying to step in as referee and decide how much market share should a company have or whatever, what government can do is facilitate free markets. And as long as there is a free market, consumers can choose for themselves. And then consumers can decide, should I buy this from Amazon or should I buy it from my local retailer? And it's up to them. And it's the sum total of all of these consumer decisions, these free decisions made by consumers in real time that determines who is providing the most consumer welfare. You know, there's a political aspect to this. We've been hearing a lot about democracy lately, little d. Um, and the when consumers buy something, they're in essence casting the vote for the products or services they want. And the majority votes should win. Um, and, and so that's if you sort of think of it in political terms, it's consumers who are casting a vote. They're voting with their dollars what they want. Ironically, we're in a time right now where those people who are claiming loudest that we need a democracy, little d, are oftentimes against this type of, uh, of consumer welfare and consumers being able to make that decision. They want the government to make those decisions for them and limit what choices consumers have. That's exactly right. I mean, putting consumers in charge is how the market determines who is doing a good job of providing consumer welfare and who's not doing a good job of consumer welfare. You know, there's no need for us to rehash this because we just did a podcast on this topic, but the same thing applies in healthcare, right? I mean, mm -hmm. we just did a whole podcast about why consumers ought to be in charge of healthcare dollars for exactly the same reason. So if you really do believe that the best results come from putting consumer welfare first, then the way consumers express their opinion, the way consumers let you know who's providing the most consumer welfare. The way they vote. is the way they vote in the marketplace. is the choices that they make in the marketplace. So we've tried to cover two major topic areas here. First of all, trade. And second, this business-to-business -business competition, this antitrust issue. Mm -hmm. But there's a third one we ought to touch on, too, which is that consumer welfare should come before highfalutin policy ideas by politicians. And it seems that far too often what we find is that our elected representatives have their personal preferences and their their personal political pet ideas, and they want to put those things also ahead of consumer welfare. And so I'm thinking here about things like the Green New Deal. I'm thinking about carbon taxes mm -hmm. and things like that, where you have these grand schemes, these these highfalutin policy ideas that are being pushed by by politicians. And the one thing we know for sure is that consumers are harmed by those things. So if, if you were to, to adopt anything approaching like the Green New Deal that's being pushed by a lot of Democrats right now or carbon taxes, which even some Republicans are pushing right mm -hmm. now, the one thing we know is that the immediate effect of those policies is to dramatically raise prices on consumers, to raise energy prices, to raise prices on gasoline, and the production of electricity and of course everything 
ends up getting touched by energy because all these goods and services, all these Amazon deliveries we're talking about are being delivered by trucks, right? And so all of that becomes more expensive. So if there's a Green New Deal, if there are carbon taxes, does Amazon still give you free delivery? Maybe they can't afford to do that anymore. So whenever we're talking about a lot of these big political schemes like Green New Deals and things like that, this is another area where consumer welfare ought to come first. Give consumers choices. Make sure consumers can make choices in the marketplace and let consumers decide for themselves what's in their best interest rather than politicians and their schemes. Because while price is not the only thing consumers uh, pay attention to, it is a major factor in all the, almost all of these Green New Deals even the states that have dramatically increased various types of renewable energies and so forth, people pay more for their electricity mm-hmm. in doing that. And if you gave people a choice, would consumers actually do that? I think it's, you know, they're, they're concerned about the environment, but they're also concerned about being able to pay their bills. And sure. if you keep jacking up the price of electricity because a politician thinks it's a good thing to do, that doesn't necessarily mean that's what consumers would do. You know, that's a really good point. And now here in Texas, for instance, where IPI is based in Texas, you actually consumers actually do have choice over who they buy their electricity mm-hmm. from. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, who, the, the retail end of the electricity, not the production end. But literally consumers can decide to pay more for energy that comes from green energy if they want to. They do. They can they can they can choose from a provider who says you know, the majority of our energy comes from wind energy or something like that, and it's more expensive, but consumers can make that choice, but they're not forced to. Right. But you see this in California where Governor Newsom has said, we're going to end fossil, uh, fossil fuel driven cars by 2035, I think is the date he put on there. Mm-hmm. That's not because consumers are saying we only want electric cars. Right. Right. It's because he is trying to move them towards that direction and they will all be paying more for those cars, and many of them who would prefer a fossil fuel-driven car or who have maybe uh, older cars that are, that are driven by gasoline, they are going to ultimately have to make changes and pay more for it. And so in a great irony, while these politicians claim to be doing all of these things to benefit consumers, what they're actually doing is taking away consumer choice. And so... Who knows whether it's to the benefit of consumers or not, because the consumer voice has been taken away because they're not able to make a choice, a free choice in a marketplace. Their choice is actually being dictated to them. And we may, what we know right now is that in, when consumers make choices in terms of electric vehicles, only a very small, tiny percentage of vehicles sold in the U.S. are electric vehicles. That may change as more car companies make more options out there, as they get uh, as the prices go down and other things. That may change over time, but it's not the case right now. So if you're a politician looking at this, you'd have to say, am I benefiting consumers and is, it, is my principal consumer welfare by driving them to electric vehicles? And the answer is no. You can't tell that from what we have right now. That's right. So in this podcast today, we started off with what probably sounded like kind of a boring idea that consumer welfare should always come first. But then we've talked about several major policy areas where you actually have strong differences of opinion, not just between Democrats and Republicans, but even sometimes within the Republican Party or the conservative movement. You have disagreements about are tariffs a good idea? Are trade protections a good idea? Should we be going after big companies on an antitrust grounds and things like that? 
And what we have tried to persuade you of today in this Policy Basics podcast is that consumer welfare should always come first. Consumer welfare should come before producer welfare. Consumer welfare should come first before the highfalutin ideas of politicians with grand schemes. And consumer welfare should come first before fear or anger of big businesses with large market share. This is how we think our way through policy debates is by having a clear set of principles in our mind. And remember that the basis of this argument that consumer welfare should come first is the observation that we work in order to consume. We do not consume in order to work. So the end goal of all economic activity, of all economic activity, is consumer welfare. You can find a lot more about trade policy and antitrust and consumer welfare at our website at IPI.org. If you've enjoyed this podcast, how about giving us a favorable review on iTunes or your favorite podcast platform? Dr. Matthews, thank you for joining me today for this conversation. Thank you. Thank all of you for joining us, and we will see you next time.